Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 702. The Naked Scientist. Definitely my favorite feature on the show. I think I've said this to you before, Dr. Chris Smith. Good afternoon to you and a happy new year. Happy new year to you as well. And you're definitely my favorite feature so far of 2023. (laughs) That's lovely hearing that. Thank you so much. People have already started with their voice notes. Those have already started streaming in. Let's go to Sam in Tembisa. Sam, good afternoon. My question is around an event called the Carrington event. That happened back in 1859, if my, my dates are correct. Dr. Chris, do, is our civilization ready for, for, a, for a coronary mass, um, uh, mass ejection of the sun? Should that happen today, our satellite, our electricity, are, are we ready for that? Or we just say we'll get there when we, you know, we'll put that bridge together? Thank you very much. Hello, Sam. You raise a very good point. And just so anyone who's not in the know and doesn't know the history as well as you do, Carrington was a slightly awkward character, but a very good observer. He was an astronomer. He was very interested in the sun. And he had been looking in the 1800s at sunspots. And he noticed, um, he didn't realise what he was seeing at the time, but he noticed a huge uh, coalescing of the most enormous group of sunspots in that year. And not long after he documented that, the Earth was hit by an ejection of material from the sun, which we now call a coronal mass ejection. And this is where we we understand a lot more about how this happens now, because the sun has a magnetic field in the same way the Earth has a magnetic field. And for slightly unusual, strange reasons we can't quite explain yet, but we do know that this is probably the physics behind it, the sun gets wound up. It's almost like a spring that you're twisting a spring to add more twist to an existingly twisted spring. And the magnetic field ends up a bit contorted at the surface and then flings itself apart at the surface, throwing, rather like a gun, a huge amount of radioactive and high-energy material from the sun's surface, or corona, towards the, the other bodies in the solar system. As they go streaming past, they they are uh, much more energetic than the solar wind, which we're continuously fending off thanks to our magnetic field. But this Mm -hmm. surge of particles goes streaming past the planet. And because it is a a deluge of intensely charged material and ionising material, it has the potential to induce currents to flow in things that are susceptible to being ionised or to being electrified. And what happened in the wake of the Carrington affair was the sky turned blood red. The telegraph system electrocuted people on Earth because as this this maelstrom of material went past the planet, it induced enormous currents to flow in the primitive telegraph system, the Morse system that was sending 
messages and telephone conversations around the, the planet uh, in, in a limited way then. And, uh, and as a result, uh, there were fires and, uh, and people died. And we realised wow. really the impact that this could have. And we now realise just how susceptible we are because we've gone to the point where we now have everyone's home connected to an electricity grid. We have everyone's computer mm-hmm. connected to a computer grid. We have a network of satellites up in space that, if those satellites failed, would bring life on Earth grinding to a halt. We all take them for granted, but you couldn't get money out of a bank with an ATM card if the GPS system, those satellites, were to fail because they are using the time codes written into those GPS signals in order to work out when transactions are happening around the planet. So we're very susceptible to anything that has the potential to damage or impact on our infrastructure. And as a result of this, um, a number of countries have now put forward projects to do space weather forecasting. The UK launched such a project. But the the issue is that we do have satellites that would be susceptible to this kind of impact if it went by. There are things we can do. For instance, uh, astronauts on the International Space Station could move uh, behind various things on the space station that are good at soaking up radiation. Some satellites we could move to a lower orbit because then they've got some more of the Earth's magnetic field to shield them and uh, we could fly planes a bit lower or ground them because their electronics would be susceptible too but by flying deep flying deeper through the atmosphere they've got a bit more shielding there but probably prediction and therefore uh, anticipation is our best defense knowing when this is going to happen and there are telltale signs on the sun when it's going to do this and therefore knowing when that is going to happen and it's going to unleash a burst of this energy when we're in the firing line that is the most important thing luckily we do have projects in place that are quite good at doing that or can take some steps towards doing that now and we can make mitigation but certainly it would have the potential to damage our electricity distribution systems our data distribution systems and our satellite systems uh, and, and other things beside that quite catastrophically if we got hit by a big one absolutely fascinating let's go to Hubert in Joburg and then we'll go to some of the voice notes that have come through as well let's go to MJ uh, very quickly in orchards in Pretoria MJ Hey, how are you? Good, good, man. I hope you're good as well. Good, man. I would like to find out from the doctor, what causes the star to move? What happens when the star moves? And and I'm not talking about that shooting star that moves fast and disappears. A star moving literally like from one point and it goes for a long time. I witnessed that for the third time now. Well, when we look at moving. yeah, when we look at the night sky and we see what we call stars, that's a slight misnomer because some of what we see in the night sky isn't a star. Of course, it's a planet, and it was actually the Greeks who first noticed that there are stars in the night sky that stay where they are, and there are other stars that move around. Even during the night, they move around, and so they called those stars that were moving planets or planetes, which means wanderers, because they thought there were two different types of stars. We now know that the ones wandering around are bodies reflecting the radiation from the sun towards us as light. They're the other planets in our solar system. And because we're moving and they're moving, that's why they appear to be wandering around as the Earth rotates around. Stars which are way off across our own galaxy in the Milky Way, those relative to us are far far away and in a fixed position so they don't walk around that's why i wondered if you were going to mention that when you look at the night sky you see a star appearing to twinkle it appears to be moving a little tiny bit backwards and forwards in the sky there's a number of reasons why that aberration is happening the star isn't really moving when you look at it one thing is your eye is moving 
And as we look at anything, our eyes drift backwards and forwards very gently across the target and the eye is continuously being reset and repointed at the thing it's supposed to be looking at. This is called a micro-circadic movement in order to keep the thing focused on the most sensitive bit of the retina. But that tiny bit of drift does make things appear to flicker if they're very dim and they're very distant. But the most important reason the star appears to flicker is because when the light is coming from the star through the Earth's atmosphere... The atmosphere has patches which are denser and because they're, because they're colder and patches of gas which are thinner because they're hotter. And when light travels from one medium into another or a less dense medium into a more dense medium or the other way around, it changes its speed. And if you change the speed of the propagation of light, you make it bend So the light waves Mm. that are coming towards us are continuously bending and twisting backwards and forwards a little bit. And your brain therefore sees a light source which is apparently moving backwards and forwards. And it thinks, well, light travels in straight lines. Therefore, the only way in which this thing could be moving backwards and forwards is is if the thing that made it appears to be moving backwards and forwards. So your brain tells you that the star is moving backwards and forwards, not that the light is twisting that's coming from us. So that's why stars appear to twinkle in the night sky. I guess, uh, Doctor, there's also the other added complexity of uh, the International Space Station, some of the satellites that if you, depending on what time you're up and what time you're looking up at the sky, you might see moving across. That's um, a very good point. Yes, thanks for pointing that out. You, the other the other stars, they're not strictly stars, and they're much, much smaller mm. that you might see if you look heavenwards is the International Space Station. That's quite close to the Earth. It's about 400 kilometres up and moving pretty fast. It's, it's orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes, believe it or not. So if you're, if you're an astronaut on there, your day is an hour and a half long. And you also got satellites, which can be in a range of different orbits at a range of different distances, but some of mm. them are actually mm. in continuously in motion relative to us and therefore you would see them as a as a light source moving across the sky uh some brighter some dimmer yeah no no definitely uh let's got some voice notes let's check in with the first uh in uh, voice note there Abel. hi gashwell happy new year to you and the 702 people and this one is for dr chris the goat of science happy new year to you too so doctor i saw something where they were saying red trap so it's like you trap a rat, maybe you put something like a cheese or whatever that you use as a bait. But now my question is, once you trapped that rat, that does that rat, after eating whatever the bait that was in the trap, start regretting that, hey, why did I get into this cage? Why am I tra- Why did I uh, get into this thing? And now does it have its own regrets after falling into a certain trap? Like us humans do that, I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have done that. So does the rats also have the same feelings or uh, I'm just being paranoid? Thank you. Excellent question on animal psychology, Doc. <laughs> well, we, we don't know if animals can experience regret because in order to have regret, you've got to be able to work out that the outcome would have been different if you'd acted differently. And that means you've got to have a concept of time because you've got to be able to march yourself back in time to say, when I had this decision, if I'd made the alternative choice, then this would have happened, which then implies you can plan for the future. Now, some animals definitely can plan for the future. There's a lady who works in the building that I'm sitting in called Nikki Clayton at Cambridge University. And she works on uh, members of the crow family, including scrub jays. 
And these birds are very interesting because they appear, appear to have exactly this, the ability to plan for the future. She demonstrated this beautifully more than 10 years ago when she built an experiment which was like a hotel for scrub jays, only it had an inside and an outside. And the birds were shut in every night inside and they weren't given mm-hmm. any food inside, but they were always given food outside. So after a few trials of this, she found that these birds, which naturally they hide food, so they've got stores of food to come back to later, she found that they were intentionally putting food inside rather than outside when they were hiding it. And one explanation for that is they must have learned, well, when I go in this hotel and get trapped Mm. indoors overnight, I don't have anything to eat. So what I need to do is to, in the future, put food indoors and hide it there because then I'll have food for later. So this was evidence to Nikki that these birds were planning for the future. Perhaps they were therefore able to regret that they didn't hide more food the first time. Who knows? But certainly birds can do that, but other animals don't appear to have the same capacity. This is not universal across the animal kingdom. But what animals definitely will do, including animals like rats, is learn that when X happens, uh, they shouldn't do Y. So they're very good at connecting a stimulus with an outcome. So if they eat something it makes them feel unwell, they won't eat that thing again. If they go somewhere and get an electric shock or a rat trap goes off near them, they won't go there again because they know, I did X, bad outcome, and that's the way in which they avoid future danger. But can they regret? Probably not. Absolutely fascinating. Let's go to Jan in Kensington. Jan, good afternoon. Uh, hello, good. Well, thanks very much. And uh, thanks, Dr. Chris, uh, you're literally a living thesaurus, aren't you? <laughs> so, my question, please. Um, it is, how can uh, South Africa benefit from the development in artificial intelligence as a nation now? The question concerns artificial intelligence. First of all, what is artificial intelligence? Well, artificial intelligence is the use of machines in order to comb through massive amounts of data and see connections which would be too difficult for us as humans to see. In other words, if you feed something a massive amount of information and say, Mm. I want you to spot the patterns in this, if a person tried to do that, they would never see subtle connections or or relationships in the data. Uh, On the other hand, a machine could do that, and that's exactly what these clever software algorithms are capable of doing. They could look at all the molecules that are washing around in your bloodstream, and they could say, when you eat X the following things happen to these molecules and these changes predict that your cholesterol level is going up and that means your risk of a heart attack is changing and it can spot relationships like that and see markers for the, predict things. You can do the same thing for climate, for example. You can say, well, I want to look at all the factors that might affect climate and you feed in all the data about all the things that are changing and all the outcomes doing before and after comparisons and you've got computer programs that can now go through and they can spot relationships you can feed in for instance pictures of moles that might be cancerous and the computer can learn to spot a cancerous mole better than a dermatologist can and that was proven there was a paper in the journal nature a few years back Mm. where uh, researchers trained an artificial intelligence platform using hundreds of thousands of images in fact millions of images to start with and then thousands of images of clinical specimens and then the diagnosis was supplied the 
computer could outperform a panel of board-certified American dermatologists. And there's nothing wrong with American dermatologists. They're pretty good at their job. So this goes to show <laughs> when you begin to deploy this kind of technology at problems, you can, you can go well beyond what the human brain is capable of. And that's why people are very excited mm. about this, because you can push back the frontiers of research with this. And I guess that the application um, then can be used in many different spaces. And Correct. I guess whether it be South Africa, the UK, Timbuktu, all of us can benefit from this in some shape or form. Let's quickly go to another voice note and then um, I'll see if we can squeeze in uh, one more call. Yeah. Dr. Chris, I'd like to find out uh, what are probiotics and then how do they form part of our daily health, uh, our gut health? as well as what are the biggest contribution that we get from probiotics in our body. Probiotics are the microorganisms that you can eat in your diet that will allegedly join the assemblage of microbes that are already in your gut and will help to maintain the balance of so-called good bacteria that live in your intestines. It's a fact that we're passengers in our own bodies. There are about 37 trillion cells in an adult human and there are at least that many, if not 10 times that many, bacteria in you and on you. But the proportions, populations and relative proportions of all these different species, and there are thousands of different species of microbes living on us and in us, the relative proportions are really important. You can't just have any old bacteria and say, well, there's my microbiome, that's good. The different types of microbes carry different disease risks or abilities to prevent you becoming unwell. They can even break down toxins in food to stop those toxins poisoning you. There's good evidence that people carry certain microorganisms that break down some of the nasties that plants make so that they make plants tolerable to us that we otherwise wouldn't be able to eat. So our microbiome makes it a hugely valuable contribution and probiotics are foods that contain a proportion of microbes that are supposed to be good bacteria that will join that assemblage of microbes and contribute to the balance, the correct sort of sharing of power in your microbiome and therefore your overall good health. And the, the best thing to bear in mind is eating a healthy diet selects for the right microbes anyway, but if you upset your microbial apple cart and you change the proportion of bacteria, for instance, if you get unwell for some reason, you take lots of antibiotics for some reason, you can take these, these probiotics and it will help to reset things and get you back on the straight and narrow. So they are a valuable thing. The other thing you can do is to eat foods that select for the right microbes preferentially, and those are called prebiotics, P-R-E, pre, rather than pro. So mm. prebiotics select for the right bugs in the first place. Doc, as always, uh, absolutely stunning um, hearing from you and, and sharing in your immense uh, amount of knowledge. All the best to you, and it was lovely chatting to you. Likewise. Thanks for the great questions. See you next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.